Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, hello. Um, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from uh, Thornhill, Ontario. Uh, the shul that we work out of is the uh, Bayat Beth Avraham Yosef. And I'd like to welcome all of our viewers back, our listeners back. We had a long break uh, from before Erev Rosh Hashanah. Now it is after Sukkot and, and Shemini Atzeret. And we are ready to continue our discussion of Moren Vuchim, the Guide of the Perplexed, that is authored by Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam Maimonides. We've been doing this for a couple of years already, and um, uh, we uh, had the great pleasure of being able to complete, at least for a first run, uh, the first section of the Rambam's Morin Vuchim. The Rambam's Morin Vuchim is divided into three parts, um, and we finished part one, which was comprised of 75 chapters, so the, or 76 chapters, excuse me. So this was quite an ambitious undertaking. Um, the, all of the recordings of the previous Shi'urim are available in multiple venues. Um, they are available on YouTube. If you go to the Bayat, B-A-Y-T channel, you can get every single recording of these, um, of these half-hour Shi'urim. Um, they are also available on the Facebook group called Shi'ur in Moren Vuchim. All of those video recordings are available. There is also a podcast that is slowly being uploaded uh, for Moren Vuchim by Rabbi Karapkin, as well as they are available on the OU.org website. WebYeshiva.org is the venue that we are currently um, being hosted by, and we are very grateful to WebYeshiva.org for their multiple offerings, including the Shir in Moren Vuchim, and we have been on this platform for quite some time. Um, uh, and we encourage you to check out all of the other wonderful uh, courses that are being offered by webyeshiva.org. Before we begin the second part of Morena Vuchim, I do feel that it's important to review the structure of the guide. Now, the topic of the structure of the guide is the source of a tremendous amount of discussion, literature, speculation uh, as to why the Rambam broke down his guide into three parts. One of the things that we learned in the introduction is that the Rambam had written to us and to his student to whom he had written this Morena Vuchim uh, text, that he has written it with tremendous precision and that it requires an individual to be able to look at each and every chapter and to connect the chapters together and to be very mindful of the structure of the guide because nothing was done in this, in this text indiscriminately there is a very deliberate structure to it. And the question therefore comes up, what is the structure of the guide? Now, in order for us to answer this question, 
Um, we're not going to be able to answer it thoroughly, but at least we'll be able to have a chance to, a, be, to begin a discussion of it. It's important to review what we've been doing over the course of these last couple of years in, this, in learning the first section of the guide. The section of the guide has been primarily concerned with removing any designation of corporeality from God and making sure that we understand that even though the Torah, the Bible, refers to God in many times anthropomorphic corporeal terms, those terms are not to be taken literally and that they, the Torah many times speaks metaphorically or in the language of our sages, Dibra Torah Kilshon B'nai Adam. The Torah speaks using human language and therefore perforce must designate certain human characteristics and impute them to God. Um, but God is above that. God is a tr truly transcendent God, which is uh, who is not comprehensible properly to man. And then therefore in his language, which is limited to the human experience, can only use words that are associable to God, but are not actually descriptive in, in any accurate way of God. That's been the primary function. And in the course of that discussion, the Rambam devoted the last um, uh, uh, eight chapters of the guide, chapters 69 to 76, he devoted to a discussion of a competing philosophy, um, meaning that the Rambam uh, is of the opinion that if we are to understand the universe and God correctly, we have to use a philosophical system called Aristotelianism, using the um, writings of Aristotle and those who came after Aristotle, Alexander of Aphrodisius, Al-Farabi, Avicenna, um, and other great Arabic philosophers who filtered and distilled the Rambam's, uh, Aristotle's writing and created a, a, a system that the Rambam feels is completely compatible with an accurate depiction of the universe in the way that Hashem wishes for us to understand it. And for the Rambam, the only way for a person to achieve dveikut or conjunction or closeness with God is through a proper understanding with one's intellect of God and of his universe. The Torah is a very helpful tool in helping us to achieve that goal, but sometimes the Torah speaks in shrouded language and therefore it, was, it is helpful to use Aristotelian philosophy as an adjunct to Torah to help us be able to better understand God and, and the universe that he has created. So that's really the premise. And the Rambam in the course of that discussion tells us that there is a competing th uh, philosophy that is called Kalam. Um, and that competing philosophy has a different way of depicting the universe has a different way of depicting creation and how the, the world functions. And the Rambam set out to prove that this competing system is mistaken. It's just not right. And if we use that competing system, as many Arabic and Judaic and Christian philosophers have done, we will end up having a, a, an incorrect understanding of God and therefore we will not be able to achieve proper devekut, proper conjunction with God. Now, with that said, the Rambam spent a lot of time discussing that, and he finished section one with basically telling us, I've now finished telling you what's wrong with the Kalam method, and now in the next section, 
I'm going to teach you the correct way of understanding God. And he sets out to prove three basic principles about God. Number one, that God exists. Number one, that God is unitary. And number three, that God is incorporeal, that he is not physical. And in the course of that, the Rambam feels that this is consistent with his the entire first section, because he has set out in the first section to try and point out uh, what God is all about, you know, that God cannot be defined in human terms, and, and, and God is completely incorporeal and not associable with anything in our universe that we understand is real. Okay, so, but now the mystery becomes, if the Rambam is about to set out to tell us the correct way to understand God and to prove these points that God exists, God is unitary, and God is incorporeal, why does he stop the first section where he stops it? Should he not have told us what the correct view of all of these things are before starting the second book or the second section of Moren of Uchim? What is the reason for having three separate sections? So this is the source of much speculation, and I'm going to bring up on my screen a uh, some snippets from an article that was composed in the early 80s from Professor Menachem Kellner, uh, who is someone that is one of, one could say, is one of the preeminent uh, living Maimonides experts who was still with us, Baruch Hashem, and continues to be very, very productive in his writing. Um, this article is from um, a, a journal that was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, it is readily available online, but if anyone would like me to uh, email them a copy of this, please reach out to me by email and I'll be happy to get it to you in its entirety. We're just, uh, and, and also this handout that I am posting on the screen is readily available um, uh, if you go to the webyeshiva.org website and look up our course. It is part, you can just download it for free from the course description, or you can go to the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morena Buchim, and you can download it from there in PDF form. So I'll just read just a few paragraphs. Among the many enigmas associated with Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, there are two that I argue here ought to be seen as related. First, why did Maimonides divide the guide into three parts? That's the first question. And second, why did Maimonides not mention in his guide his 13 principles of faith that he had promulgated in his earliest major work, his commentary on the Mishnah? We are all, many of us are familiar with the Rambam's 13 principles of faith, Shlosha Asar Ikare Amuna. The Rambam had originally formulated them as a young man when he wrote his Mishnah commentary to Tractate Sanhedrin, but he also mentions it in a slightly different form in his Mishneh Torah, and he also mentions it in some literature that he had written after he had authored Moren Nevuchim in his epistle or his Igeret on Tchiat HaMetim, on the resurrection of the dead, and some other texts as well. So why are the Rambam's 13 principles of faith not mentioned in Moren Nevuchim? Now, you might ask the question, well, why should they be mentioned in Moren Nevuchim? Is not Moren Nevuchim a discourse on... Uh, the Rambam's view of how to uh, integrate Aristotelian philosophy with the Torah. Yes, but one would think that if the Rambam is talking about the proper intellectual modes that a Jew is supposed to uh, possess, then why not mention these 13 basic ideas that are intellectually necessary, according to the Rambam, to be a member of the Jewish people and to be subject to the world to come? 
So we're not going to read the whole article, but the first thing the, uh, that uh, Professor Kellner does is that he reviews some previous theories about why the, the guide is divided into three parts. He says a number of modern scholars have sought to connect the guide's chapter one with another, chapters one with another, and mention ought to be made of the studies of Ravidowitz, Strauss, and Berman. On the question of the tripartite division of the guide, Ravidowitz concluded that part one contains a critique of erroneous views and serves to introduce part two concerning theory and part three concerning practice. It's a little bit vague. We're not going to go into that now. Strauss divides the work into seven sections, ignoring Maimonides' own division of three parts, and that we're going to have to put aside as well. Berman, following Ravidowitz and to some extent Strauss, argues that part one deals with the imagination and its perils. And really what that means is, and consistent with what he quotes in the name of Ravidowitz, is that the Rambam tries to insert into part one some of the some of the pitfalls of studying physics and metaphysics of the philosophy of reality, and that one should not get caught up either in the um, in the anthropomorphic language of the Torah or the mistaken philosophy of the Kalamists. That would be all of part one, right? And part two, with the domain of the theoretical intellect, meaning that what ideas, what correct ideas a Jew is supposed to harbor. And part three, part three, with the relationship between theory and practice, because in reality, part three deals with the mitzvot primarily, the function of the mitzvot, how a person is supposed to approach the performance of mitzvot and reward and punishment. In my view, the analyses of Ravidovitz, Strauss, and Berman, while clarifying many aspects of the guide structure, do not succeed in fully accounting for its tripartite division. So, uh, again, skipping to, an, to a later part of this, um, uh, Kellner uh, itemizes for us the, in very, very brief form, the 13 principles of faith. Maimonides lists those beliefs a person must hold in order to be counted as an Israelite. They may be summarized as follows. Number one, that God exists. Number two, that God is one. Number three, that God is incorporeal. Number four, that God is eternal. And number five, that God alone may be worshipped. Now, if you notice, the first five of the 13 principles of faith all deal with some aspect of God. And according to the Rambam, if a person wishes to be counted as part of the Jewish people for all eternity, he must harbor these five basic ideas about God that he exists, that he's unitary, that he's incorporeal. And then he adds uh, to those three that he is eternal and that he alone may be worshiped. Okay, the next uh, part, that number six, is that prophecy exists, that the prophecy of Moses is superior to all other prophecy, that the Torah was divinely revealed, and that the Torah is immutable. Now, these uh, last four, deal with divine communication with man, that God is capable of communicating, that God did communicate with Moses and that he is the chief or the, or the supremest of all of the prophets. The Torah, which is the that which God revealed to Moses, is completely of divine origin, and that the Torah is immutable. This communication to Moses cannot be exchanged for a later communication. This all deals with divine communication to man. 
And then the last four, okay, are number 10, that God knows the deeds of men. God is aware of what man is doing, that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Number 12, that the Messiah will come. And number 13, that the dead will be resurrected. Now, you're already seeing that there's a structure to the 13 <laughs> principles of faith that Professor Kellner is now going to quote from the Rashbats, Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran, to explain to us that there is a three-part structure to the 13 principles of faith. One of the earliest scholars to comment on these principles was Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran of the 14th and 15th century. Duran divides Maimonides' 13 principles into three groups. Principles one through five deal with God. Principles six through nine deal with the Torah. And principles 10 through, through, through 13 deal with retribution. Duran also links the three groups to terms in the Mishnah cited just above. The Apikores denies the principles dealing with God. Torah from heaven refers to the second group of principles and resurrection to the third. We're, we're not going to go into an analysis of the Mishnah right now. Once stated, Duran's tripartite division of the principles and the relation of each part to a term in the Mishnah seems so obvious that it is difficult to believe that Maimonides did not intend it. Could we rely on the argument of consensus gentium, the case would be established. Almost all subsequent scholars from Yosef Albo in the 15th century to Arthur Hyman in our own day have followed Duran's suggestions, that in reality, the 13 principles of faith can be broken down into three parts. What he means by quoting Rav Yosef Albo in his Sefer Ha'ikarim, Rav Albo basically says that it's almost as if he's taking issue with the Rambam, and instead of him, instead of there being really 13 principles of faith, Rav Albo argues that those 13 can be whittled down to only three principles of faith. The three principles of faith that every Jew must accept in order to be counted as part of the Jewish people is belief in God. Belief number two, belief in Torah min Hashemayim, and belief number three in Sachar Va'onesh, or divine providence. Okay, so once we understand that, that that's what the 13 principles are can be condensed into, we see a three-part structure to the 13 principles. Now, I hope you realize where Kellner is going with this. He says, it is my contention that an important parallelism obtains between the subject matter of each part of the guide and the subject matter of each group of principles as divided, if not necessarily as named by Doran. The subject matter of the first group of principles is God. This is clearly the subject matter of the first part of the guide. The subject matter of the second group of principles is prophecy in general and mosaic revelatory prophecy in particular. This, I will argue below, is the subject matter of the second part of the guide. Okay, so that sort of should be underlined for our purposes as we be, uh, prepare to embark on the second part of the guide, that the focus of the second part of the guide is going to be about nivuah, is going to be about prophecy, and in, and, and in particular, mosaic prophecy, the giving of the Torah, and what actually it means for God to communicate with man, what, how God communicates with man, and what the nature of that communication is. Um, the subject matter of the third group, and God willing, when we finish the second section, we'll, we'll review this, 
of principles is reward and punishment. And in particular, the reward and punishment attendant upon the observance or non-observance of the Torah of Moses. Guide section three similarly concerns the rewards and punishments attendant upon the Torah of Moses, and like the third group of principles, deals with the questions of God's knowledge and providence, both of which are intimately connected with the question of reward and punishment. Again, I encourage you to look at the article in, it, in its entirety. It's not a long article, but we don't have time to go through all of it. And so I'm skipping to the really the last point that I want to make before we begin section two. I, I started off by saying a few moments ago that section two is really a continuation of section one of the guide, because the Rambam ended section one of the guide by telling us what is wrong uh, with the Kalam. What is wrong, uh, you know, what we're not supposed to believe as far as our understanding of how to prove God's existence, how to prove that God is unitary, and how to prove that God is incorporeal, and how to demonstrate that the world was created at some point in time. The Rambam says there is a way that the Kalamists, the Mutakalimun, explain this, but don't go for it because it's erroneous. And now, when I begin section two, I'm going to explain to you how to prove those points. Now, as Kellner points out, if his thesis is correct, that the first section of the guide is dedicated to an explanation of God, consistent with the first five of the 13 principles of faith, he says, according to the scheme proposed here, the introduction and first chapter of part two seems to belong in the first part of the guide, dealing as they do with God, while the discussion of the separate intellects and creation would seem to be out of place as well and perhaps better off in part one. What Professor Kellner is telling us is that when we look at the first part of section two, the first dozen or so chapters, I think a little bit more than that, we're going to discover that they are more consistent with the universe that God created and really has nothing to do with divine communication per se, but really is more uh, in, in line with what we would think should belong in part one of the guide. So he's got to explain that. He's got to explain why the Rambam begins section two here and not section two uh, several chapters later. The connection between these two discussions and prophecy, however, is not difficult to discover. Maimonides, as he himself points out in section two, chapter 25, had to posit creation in order to make Mosaic prophecy, the revelation of the Torah, possible. As we'll see when we study chapter 25, the two are directly related. In order for God to be able to communicate with man, God must be able to insert himself into three-dimensional time and, uh, sorry, three-dimensional space and time. And in order for that to be accomplished, God must be a creator of sorts who brings about a universe and maintains it and controls it. Furthermore, he explicitly linked prophecy and creation at the beginning of section 2, chapter 32, saying that the opinions of people concerning prophecy are like their opinions concerning the eternity of the world or its creation in time. Now, let me just point out, I'll just give a very, very brief explanation of what that means. You see, the one uh, point of, of um, departure between the Rambam and Aristotelian philosophy is that Aristotle believed that there's no such thing as a volitional God who decides one day to do X and another day to do Y. Um, uh, God is 
God is, and his existence gives rise to the maintenance of a universe that has existed eternally. And so it was completely inconceivable to Aristotle that there should have ever been at one point a creation that God brought our universe into existence. Furthermore, while Aristotle subscribes to the idea that the human being can intellectually conjoin with this divine being who Aristotle calls the prime mover or the prime cause, nevertheless, that kind of conjunction happens automatically. That is to say, when a human being develops their intellect to a very, very high degree, then it's almost like they've reached uh, a certain uh, peak of excellence, and that peak of excellence automatically causes them to plug into a, um, a, a, cos a cosmic intellect that emanates from this divine being. And that's what you would call prophecy, according to Aristotle. It's an intellectual um, um, conjunction with a cosmic intellectual force that emanates from this prime being, this, this divine being. But the Rambam's depiction of prophecy is more in line with the way we perceive prophecy in Tanakh, that God chooses with whom he wishes to communicate. It's not something that a person can just say, I will hone my intellect until I achieve prophecy. No, God will... Uh, only allow you to be prophetic if he chooses to grant you knowledge. And even then, it's not that you will have access to all intellectual um, resources, but only that knowledge which God chooses for you to have. And that's the Jewish definition. That's the Maimonidean definition of prophecy. Now, that uh, requires us to concede that God is selective in the way that he interacts with our physical reality very much unlike Aristotle, who says that it's all automatic, that based upon the nature of this divine being, things just happen, like a, uh, like a radio tower that naturally emits radio waves based upon its nature. But Maimonides says, no, God is volitional. Hashem chose to create, and Hashem chooses to grant prophecy. And that's what he means when he says that there is a direct link between explaining creation properly and explaining prophecy properly. Uh, Maimonides' discussion of the separate intellects is basically an analysis of the divine overflow or emanation that is the basis for prophecy and other phenomena. What we mean by separate intellects is a discussion that we'll have within the next several weeks when we read the first chapters of section two, we'll explain that Maimonides maintains that when God created the universe, he created concentric spheres, and each sphere has its own intellect, which carries some uh, type of intellectual, some cosmic intellect, and transports it down to our world. But what if Maimonides' Aristotelian proofs of God's existence, unity, and incorporeality, with which he opens part two? In the first instance, it ought to be pointed out that these proofs serve as the beginning and basis for the analysis of the divine overflow, which itself is a prerequisite for the discussion of prophecy. They are thus entirely germane to the subjects of prophecy and revelation. So that's his first argument. In order for us to understand prophecy, we first need to understand the system with which God interacts with our universe through a series of, of created intellects, which transmit intellect or, or knowledge to the, the, the beings in our world who prime themselves to receive that intellectual knowledge. 
Okay, and that's what we would we would we would call prophecy. So in order to understand prophecy correctly, you have to understand God and the way that He interacts with our world, and that's the first section of uh, uh, the first part of section two of the guide. They are thus entirely German, right? Okay. Furthermore, without God, prophecy as anything more than a psychological phenomenon becomes impossible. It might further be suggested that Maimonides included this material here in order to demonstrate to the philosophic Jew that accepting the basic premises of, Arist of Aristotelianism, even to the extent of being able to prove God's existence, unity, and incorporeality thereby, does not commit one to belief in the eternity of the world. Because even though Aristotle believes in an eternal universe, the Rambam wants to make sure that we understand that a belief in creation is still possible, even if you are a thorough Aristotelian philosopher. Belief in eternity, in turn, would involve belief in the necessary existence of the world, making it impossible to interpret revelation and prophecy in any other way than a wholly naturalistic fashion, which is what I've described already. Be this uh, last as it may, there can be little doubt that the focus of part two is the epistemology of the phenomenon of prophecy in general, corresponding to principle six, and the unique legislative prophecy of Moses in particular, corresponding to principles seven to nine. So that's Kellner's thesis. I find it, among all of the other things that I've read about the structure of the guide, to be the most satisfying. I would encourage anyone who's watching this or listening to this to let me know if you found a competing system which you feel, or a competing explanation to Professor Kellner's, which you feel is more satisfying to you, please share it with us. But this is, I think, the proper way for us to embark on our discussion of section two of the guide. Now, um, before we uh, embark on the reading of the text, I would just like to point out that the introduction of section two, which is, you know, the, the Rambam's own introduction to the second part, is comprised of setting down premises that you must believe as an Aristotelian. And this is very consistent with what he did in the end of section one, when he first laid out the, the, the competing philosophical system of Kalam. And the Kalam system he had set out, um, I believe it was 12 premises, and, uh, and here he's going to set out 26 premises uh, that, that Aristotle uh, had set out for us. And, um, and, um, and that's really uh, going to form the basis of the first several chapters of section two to explain God's existence, God's unitary and incorporeal nature. Um, and, and also, this will also lead to a discussion of creation because the Rambam will have to contend with the fact that although he is an Aristotelian, he still subscribes to the Torah's depiction of creation more than Aristotle's suggestion that the world has eternally existed. So there are 26 premises in our introduction. Um, and what I wanna point out is that um, we will go over first the first 25 of those premises, at least to, the, to as much as we can next week. And then the following week, when we finish the introduction, we will discuss the 26th premise, which is the most problematic. Now to understand why that 26th premise is most problematic, we should just read the first paragraph um, of the introduction, which you can find on page 235 
in the Pines edition. And I probably should have mentioned at the outset that for our text of the guide, we are using what is considered to be, um, to date, what is considered by many to be the best English translation of the guide that was done by Professor Shlomo Pines in the early 1960s. It is available on Amazon. It's published by the Chicago University Press. And uh, we encourage anyone who wishes to seriously pursue this study um, to, uh, to, to get a copy of that English translation. We also very often not only reference the, the very traditional Ibn Tibon translation of the guide and its commentaries, but also the translation from Professor Kafif that was published by Mossadar of Cook a number of years ago. And we use this also as a very helpful um, uh, adjunct to understanding the text. But let's read the first paragraph. And he writes, the premises needed for establishing the existence of the deity, may he be exalted, and for the demonstration that he is neither a body nor a force in a body, and that he may his name be sublime as one, are 25. There are 25 premises that you we need to uh, uh, present, and we will use these 25 premises to then prove that God exists, that he is incorporeal, and that he is completely unitary, all of which are demonstrated without there being a doubt as to any point concerning them. And so the Rambam is already signaling to us at the very outset that I'm not going to spend time proving these 25 premises. They have already been proven in the Aristotelian textbooks, and therefore I'm not going to take time to do that. If you wish to know how we know these premises to be uh, proven and correct, go study Arist Aristotle's texts. Go study the descendants of Aristotle uh, uh, who wrote and explained his, his philosophy. They are, these premises can be found both in physics and in metaphysics, the two works by Aristotle of many. Um, but this is the, those are the two books that where primarily these premises are gleaned. Um, for Aristotle and the peripatetics after him have come forward with a demonstration for every one of them. The term peripatetic is a term that is used to, to uh, describe both Platonic and Aristotelian philosophers. The word peripatetic simply means someone who moves from place to place is itinerant because it was typical in the ancient Greek world for you to be able to recognize a philosopher by the fact that they would be uh, uh, um, deeply steeped in rumination or philosophical discussion while walking along, you know, the Roman countryside or in the Colosseums and so forth. Okay, there is one. There is one premise that we will grant them, and for through it the objects of our quest will be demonstrated. As I shall make clear, this premise is the eternity of the world. And what the Rambam is basically saying is is that there is a twenty-sixth premise that has not been proven. It has not been proven, but it is something that they believe in, um, and they take it as given. I do not take it as given. I do not accept that it has been proven, and that premise is that the world has eternally existed and was not created at some point in time. Now, the Rambam says, I will concede for argument's sake that the world is eternal, and I will still be able to prove the three objectives of God's existence, his unitary nature, and his incorporeality. I will prove them even if one concedes that the 26th premise of the world being eternal is true. Why? Because I want to show that you don't necessarily need to disagree with Aristotle on that point in order to believe in the God that we believe, the God of the Torah. 
But nonetheless, at some point in section two, the Rambam will, will argue that the world was indeed created unlike Aristotle. Okay, so we've already started the text. We won't have time today to go into the 26 Aristotelian premises that we'll save that until uh, next week. And, and Bezrat Hashem will do, we'll try and get through the first 25, and then we'll reserve our discussion for premise 26 the following week. I wish you a good week and thank you for joining us.